Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 233 with Todd Davis. I think you're going to get a real kick out of this episode because Todd has gained a wealth of experience as the chief people officer at Franklin Covey. They have thought long and hard about the best practices for cultivating better work relationships, and he spills the beans here. So you'll learn one, how to see others more clearly, two, a master tactic to get better feedback from your colleagues, and three, the most common mistakes that destroy work relationships. So if you'd like to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we've referenced here, you can find that on over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep233. Now here is Todd's story. Todd Davis is the author of Franklin Covey's Get Better, 15 Proven Practices to Build Effective Relationships at Work. And with over 30 years of experience in human resources, talent development, executive recruiting, sales, and marketing, Davis serves as Franklin Covey's Chief People Officer and Executive Vice President, responsible for global talent development in over 40 offices, reaching 160 countries. Here's Todd. Todd, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Thank you, Pete. I'm uh, happy to be here. Oh, well, I'm excited myself. So I want to get the story here. So tell us about being the Chief People Officer at Franklin Covey. What a place to have that title. What's that like? Yeah, thanks for asking. It is. It's an honor. I've been here for 21 years, and uh, I, I get asked about my title a lot, the Chief People Officer. What is that exactly? <laughs> and it's just as the name suggests. My my focus and my primary responsibility is on the people. Uh, for those of you listening who are familiar, and most of the world is, with uh, the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, the late Dr. Stephen R. Covey talked about the importance of balancing between between production and production capability. He called it PPC balance. The production being, of course, the results that we get, and then the production capability is the very thing that produces those results. He used the analogy of the, you know, the old uh, nursery rhyme, the goose and the golden egg, and right. would talk about, for those of you who aren't familiar with it, you know, the farmer goes out, sees the golden egg, cashes it in, can't believe it. it each day he, he gets more and more excited about this golden egg and finally gets so anxious that he cuts off the head of the goose to reach down and get all the golden eggs. And of course there are none. And he, in the process has killed the very thing that produces the golden eggs. I remember that every day because while we're certainly about results, like most organizations and companies uh, and teams are, uh, we've got to make sure it's a careful balance and that we're always taking care of the goose that uh, lays the golden eggs. So that's my quick little story about what my primary focus is as the chief people officer. Understood. Well, Intriguing. And so now I remember that lesson when I was reading as an impressionable teenager, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People myself, and it's certainly a a classic legendary work. I'd like to know, did you have the opportunity to have any enriching exchanges with Stephen Covey himself? You know, I did. And uh, what, what a privilege for me. As I said, I joined what was then called the Covey Leadership Center uh, about a little over 21 years ago is when I joined uh, and then about a year and a half after I joined, we merged with uh, what was then called Franklin Quest, become Franklin Covey. But in those early years, now Stephen, of course, the majority of his time was out uh, speaking around the world. But I had a couple of great opportunities to work directly with him. I used to, at one point, my career worked in the innovations department where we would create all of our solutions and our training. And in that role, I was uh, 
on the set a lot when we were filming Steven in videos. And so uh, the downtime was my favorite time because I got to learn directly from the master himself, although he wouldn't call himself that. He was a very humble person, but uh, lots of lots of memorable times with him, particularly during the filming of certain videos that he's in. Oh, I'd love it. Well, could you maybe share an anecdote uh, along the way here? I remember, I think I was reading Essentialism, where mm-hmm. Greg McEwen, who's a, also a guest on the show, yay, check him out, everyone. Uh, okay. <laughs> he mentioned that Stephen Covey had a special sort of date planned with his daughter. And when he was out speaking on location, I think in San Francisco or so, and then someone said, oh, hey, you know, great seeing you. Oh my gosh, we should get to dinner. And he just like stuck to his priorities and said, oh, I'd love to. And his daughter was disappointed. He's like, but unfortunately I've already got something planned. (laughs) (laughs) And he stuck with it, which is kind of the point, like the priorities and family. And right. So that was cool. I mean, so it seems like, you know, the legend lives not only in books and trainings and audio uh, programs, but also just in what people share. So, so I'd love to hear any memorable anecdotes for you. Well, what a great story that you just shared. And I will tell you, I was just asked to do a taping about this. It was actually his, would have been his 85th birthday uh, last week. Well, on the 24th of October was his 85th birthday. He died shortly before he turned 80. And, um, you are so so several of us that had worked directly with him, they asked us to do these quick little video clips that they were posting on the on the Frank Covey website. And his son, Stephen M. R. Covey, who still works with us and is a best selling author of The Speed of Trust, he was to your point that you just made. He said, you know, my dad was larger than life and, and as he, you know, taught such a principle based philosophy around the world, he was even more so in person. And your your story is just an excellent example of that. I have uh, I had the good fortune of having his oldest daughter, Cynthia, who lives in our neighborhood. And uh, we're quite good friends with Cynthia and her husband. And so to learn more about him, you know, and about what it was like through her and his children growing up with uh, with Dr. Kevy is, is really fun, too. I'll tell you one that stands out. And it, it actually is why I believe Stephen was able to make even such a quick decision when he was out to dinner with his daughter and that the story that you just told. When we were on, on set one time filming... Um, a couple of videos for an updated seven habits course. Uh, there was some quiet time. And, and I remember we were outside down in a, in a big open area down by a, 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 a cabin home that they have. And I just said, it was just Stephen and I, and I said to him, Stephen, if you of all the things you teach, I mean, you talk about so many principles and paradigms, we have so many great models in all of our content from the books you've written and all of that. If you could, have people remember only one thing to make them more effective. What would that be? And he did not even hesitate. He said it would be the plan each week before the week begins. I mean, he said it like it wasn't a script or anything. He just said it would be the plan each week before the week begins. And I, I was kind of taken aback. Like I thought it would be something like, well, remember who you are. But, but, but what I have learned from him is in that time when he, and we, we certainly teach about weekly planning, in that time when he would do this and when I do this on, on a Sunday night or a Sunday afternoon before my week begins is when he would prioritize what are the most important things that are taking place this week so that I don't allow you know, something urgent to come crash over it. And while I don't know what was in his mind when he, you know, your friend told the story, you heard the story about him going out to dinner with his lunch or lunch with, lunch with his daughter, I would expect 
that when he was planning his week and he had a, an appointment with his daughter to go to lunch, that he that's when he made the decision right then, Sunday night. Nothing, this is a very important relationship to me. Nothing's going to get in the way of it. And so it makes the decisions so much easier when the work week begins and all of the urgent things come flying at us to say, gosh, I got to address some of those, but these you know, important things, he called them big rocks, these important things are going to remain important and they're not going to get pushed aside. So there you have it. <laughs> oh, I love it. Thank you. Well, no, that's a real treat. Appreciate you sharing that. And so I also want to hear plenty about your book, Get Better. 15 Proven Practices to Build Effective Relationships at Work. That is a recurring theme we like to discuss here, effective relationships at work. So tell us kind of what's the main idea of the book and why is it important, you know, right now? Well, like I said, I've been in this, I've been in Franklin County for 21 years. For the past 30 years, I've observed and coached leaders and others at all levels in organizations. And literally from the hundreds of principles and tools and paradigms contained in Franklin Covey's world-class solutions, I've seen through my work, through the roles that I've been in, time and time again, those specific behaviors or practices that I call them, that are the real accelerators to moving people in their relationships and therefore their circle of influence forward, or that become the real detractors that people, including myself, trip on. And so it's because of my, again, I, I don't profess to be any genius, but I do profess to have thousands and thousands of reps, repetitions uh, of, of helping people work through their, their relationships, I don't, not as a family counselor, but I mean in their work relationships. And so because I have so many repetitions at that, I'm in a good position to identify which are the most common, uh, like I said, to, to really help or really hinder those relationships. And I put them in a book called, as you mentioned, Get Better, 15 Proven Practices to Build Effective Relationships at Work. For, for a good year, the book has been, we've been writing this for two years now. For the first year, it was 21, 21 practices. <laughs> but we figured that was a lot. <laughs> so we, we combined some of those and, and narrowed it down very carefully to these 15 that I identify in the book. Oh, fantastic. Well, so could you maybe start us off by saying, how do we maybe from a starting line perspective, get an understanding of where we're starting from in terms of like the current quality of relationships. Is there a means of assessing or evaluating like how we're doing here? Yeah, well, there are, yes. And there are, there are lots of, of tools and surveys and things like that to measure everything as we know in the world. And, and certainly plenty of them on their, out there on the relationships. My, my premise and philosophy is that the quality a relationship is tied directly to the level of trust in that relationship. And that's across all relationships, whether they're in my professional life, in my personal life, it all begins with what is the level of trust in that relationship? So that's how I, um, that's how I discern for myself and, and for others uh, uh, where the relationship is at right now. Because once we address that, once we have uh, a sufficient, and I don't think you can ever have enough trust, but once we have a sufficient level of trust, well, then we can go about working together, repairing, uh, you know, a relationship that's been broken, um, working through big and little obstacles, but it all ties first and foremost to the level of trust that we have. And so now when you say the level of trust, I mean, how do you, I guess there's assessments that can measure that too, but do you have like a quick sense in terms of like a couple of yes, no questions you ask yourself to see if we got it or we don't? 
Well, you know, that's a great, <laughs> that's a great idea. And while, while we don't put that in the, in the book, um, I, I think that I'm just kind of thinking through all the examples I have in the book, they all begin with, um, or at least are associated with how easy is this person to work with? It doesn't mean how easy is it because this person sees everything the way I see it or agrees with me, but do we have the communication? And, and again, it just ties back to trust. Do we have enough trust that the communication is easy that I can, that I can share things if I see something very differently than Pete does, but yet our, our level of trust is so high that I can say, Hey Pete, you, you know, you know, my intent, and we, we're seeing this thing very differently, and, and I don't know that either way is right, but can we go ahead and talk about it? I mean, that's the kind of dialogue that is very common throughout this book. It's very practical. Practice eight is titled, Take Stock of Your Emotional Bank Accounts. And the reason I'm just mentioning that right now, Pete, is that uh, we compare and we don't compare a, an emotional bank account to a financial bank account. A financial bank account, you certainly make deposits and grow interest and, and, and have planned withdrawals. An emotional bank account, you certainly want to make deposits, but never with the intent of taking a withdrawal. And the more consistent deposits I make over time, the much higher level of trust I build. So that when, as human beings, and we're fallible and make mistakes, um, when I do that, well, if I've got a high EBA, I like to call it, a high emotional bank account level, then it doesn't harm you know, the level of trust and therefore the relationship. So I, I feel like I'm talking around your question a little bit, but I don't have, or profess to have, uh, you know, if you ask these three questions, then you immediately know whether Pete and I have, have a great relationship. But, but I do say the, 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 the uh, courage, the level of courage and consideration you have in a relationship and the amount of transparency you can have in your dialogue greatly determines where the quality of the relationship is. And I hear that. And so maybe it's certainly not binary there, but rather more of a spectrum or continuum. But I think I hear just what you're saying. It's like, there's some folks I could just tell them directly. It's almost like the scope of things we can talk about, you know, mm -hmm. in terms of easily versus, okay, it's, we could talk about A, B or C just fine, but ooh, don't you dare you know, say something <laughs> about their yeah. you know, sacred cow or whatever. Otherwise, you know, we're going to have a real... It's going to get difficult. We will not have an easy time, mm -hmm. you know, communicating with each other versus when it's like, okay, this is just my observations right now. And here you go. And you could just do that pretty effortlessly. Then you're sort of in the highest planes of trust. Exactly. Yeah. Great, great comparison. Okay, cool. Well, so understood. Well, so then I'd love it. So you've painstakingly, you know, whittled them down. We started with 21 <laughs> yes. and then it went down to 15. So I'm going to put you on the spot all the more. Could you share with us, you know, two or three of these practices that just make the massive difference? You bet. Um, how about 15? <laughs> all 15 of them. No, you're, 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 I, I understand. So, so they all do make a massive difference. But let me start with practice one. And I won't go through all 15, but practice one is practice one for a reason. Wear glasses that work. The way we see things drives everything else. And, and that's the big aha for people. We already know, most of us know, you know, our behaviors, our actions lead to the results we get. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's, that's well known. But what we, what we might say we know, but when we really stop and think about it, it's how are we looking at things? What lenses are we looking through? You know, I got my I got my very first actual set of lenses when I was in the second grade, 
And I, to this day, remember putting those on after, you know, all the eye examining, putting those on. And for the first time, I could see the leaves up on the trees. Now, you're thinking, how blind were you, Todd? <laughs> I, was, I was pretty blind. And, and previous to the new glasses, I would look up there and I would see this green kind of mass. I mean, I knew there were leaves up there, of course, but, but I could see this green mass kind of blurry. But here's the point, Pete. I thought that's what everyone saw when they looked up at the tree. I, I, I didn't question it. I just thought, oh, that's how people see when they look up at the trees. And that's the principle or the point behind wearing glasses that work. It's seeing things as they actually are versus what we've convinced ourselves they are because of my, you know, however old you are, you know, eight years of life or whatever in the second grade. And, and, and so what happens in life, both at work and at home, is that we have this shaped opinion and if it's shaped long enough, we've decided it's the truth. And, and sometimes it is. I'm not telling people, hey, well, your opinions don't matter. Many of our opinions are very accurate. But, but often, especially in a relationship, when we have a snag or a challenge or a hiccup, it's because we are so set in the way we see things that we've forgotten there might be another way to look at things. So that's the – probably went longer than you want to be too, but that's the, the importance of practice one. And why it's practice one is because the way we see things – determines how we implement or not implement all of the other 14 practices. Understood. Yes. Well, it's so that I'm wondering, you know, if we got some, you know, myopia or challenges seeing things correctly or accurately, you know, what's the prescription to get things aligned right? Yeah. Thank you for asking. So at the end of each practice, I have an application to get better applications. So that to, to your point, we can, okay, where do I start? So with this particular practice, and this is proven to be wildly effective, and I use it myself a ton, I have a challenging situation or person. What I do is I go ahead and I list out on a piece of paper all of the things that contribute to why I think that situation is so challenging. Write them all out. Some of them are words, some of them are phrases. Write it all out. Then what I do and I coach people to do is go through that list and circle those things that are facts. And when I coach people on if they're facts. What I mean by that is that you could show this list to 10 other people, eight other people that are familiar with the situation, and they would agree with you that those things are facts, okay? So so what you'll find is I've circled the facts, and, and certainly there are always a few things that, that some of you say, okay, yeah, I bet Pete and Debbie and Sarah, everybody would agree with that. But, but you'll look through, and all the things that aren't circled, they're opinions. And they're maybe strongly held opinions, and maybe they're, maybe they're quite accurate. But nevertheless, it's the starting point for me to say to myself, okay, is Pete – well, I won't use your name now because I can use a bad example. But is, is Joe really lazy? You know, So I, I put this list together. Like, okay, so Joe thinks he's everything. Joe graduated you know, top of his class. Joe's kind of lazy. Joe does really good work when he focuses. Joe – you know, I put all these things down. And then I go through and I say, okay, now what are the facts? Well – would everybody agree with me that Joe's lazy? No, I better not circle that one. Okay, Joe did graduate top of the class. We know that. I circled that one. Joe does do quality work. Yep, I bet everybody would agree with that one. But then the other things that I'm seeing, they're my opinions. And it causes me then to step back and say, okay, I feel strongly that Joe's lazy. Is Joe really lazy or am I looking at, should I look at this a different way? What is causing me to think Joe's lazy? And that's how we begin to examine the glasses we're wearing. Now, it may turn out that Joe's lazy, but more often than not, I can go back to saying, you know what? I forgot the fact that Susan's a single mom and 
she comes into work late every day, but that's not because she's careless. It's because she's got all these things to do in the morning with her kids. Do you, do you see where I'm going with this? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yes. So you're clarifying that there. And so the fact might be she appears, you know, at 11 a.m. each day to work. But the opinion is, you know, she doesn't care. You know, she's checked out or any number of, of inferences you pull from those. Mm-hmm. And, and when you, exactly. And when you do this exercise, I'm using some really you know, black and white examples, but, but when you get into the more complicated examples, like, like what I'm just thinking of the other day, someone I work with, a really talented person, they are difficult to work with. And, and when I started to drill down on it, and this gets into another practice, get the volume right. It wasn't that they were trying to be difficult to work with or that they necessarily had this weakness. It's that they've got a, a strength dialed up too high. So get the volume right, which is practice 11. It's all about our strengths. This person happens to be very efficient. She, she's very efficient. She's very precise. But what a great strength to have. But when she has the volume on that turned up too high, she comes across as kind of rigid and inflexible and a little bit curt you know, or, or abrupt in her emails. She doesn't have that intention at all. She's just trying to be efficient with people's time. So she doesn't do what you and I do with an email saying, hey, hope your day's going great. Hope everybody's fine. You know, have you had a chance to pull up those videos yet or something? She just sends an email and says, Pete, do you have the videos yet? And all of a sudden Pete reads it and goes, oh, is she ticked off at me or whatever? So I've been I've been working with her and, and again, truly blind spot because this is a really good, talented person, but just was unaware of some of those nuances that were, that were you know, habits or behaviors that she had. Mm-hmm. Okay. Thank you. Well, could you give us another key practice then? Bet. Um, let me look. I'm just looking through the list here. I mean, they're all they're really, really hard to choose here. I, I would say uh, practice 13, make it safe to tell the truth. What this practice is talking about is do you make it safe for others to tell you the truth? You know, think about when was the last time you asked for feedback? Mm-hmm. We, we and, and maybe some people, oh, I do it every day, but most people don't. And I find we don't ask for feedback because it's hard enough to give ourselves feedback. You know, like standing on the bathroom scale, which I did this morning, and I did not like the feedback. But it's even harder because we, we, we forget what people's intent is. You know, assume good intent makes it safer for people to tell the truth. When somebody tells you you got, I don't know, a piece of spinach in your teeth at lunch, you don't think, well, you just want to criticize me. No, you know that they are, they're just being considerate and want to help you. But when someone tells you, you know, I noticed you kind of dominate the meetings and it shuts down other people. Well, then we get all defensive and we think, well, you just want to criticize. Why is it when we jump to that? People in general just want to help. So make it safe to tell the truth. And, I, and I, we have an application for that in the back of this, uh, back of this practice. And I'll just tell you quickly, one of the best things you can do to make it safe for people to tell the truth is ask them for feedback. Now, that sounds like a no-brainer, but the way you ask them for feedback. So let's say that I'm giving a presentation for a client, and I notice in the audience of, of these people that my friend Pete is there. So I go up to Pete after I give the presentation. I say, hey, Pete, what did you think of my presentation? Well, what's Pete going to say? It was fantastic. Yeah, thank you. And that's why I continue to hang out with you. But suppose that maybe the day before the presentation, I notice my friend Pete is going to be there, and I call him, and I say, hey, Pete, I understand you're going to be in my uh, keynote tomorrow. Could I ask you a favor? Would you mind, while you're watching me present, would you mind taking a few notes on things that you think I could do to improve the presentation? I mean, I'd love to hear what you think I'm doing well, but I'm really focused on improving my delivery skills. 
if you wouldn't mind taking some notes, I value your opinion, I value your judgment, and then maybe we could get together the following day or at your convenience, and you wouldn't mind sharing with me those things. I would really appreciate that. Now, both scenarios, I'm asking for feedback, but one is very different than the other. So that's how we make it safe for others to tell us the truth. Okay, very good. And so I think about sort of the opposite of these things, how we make it unsafe. You know, one is defensiveness, which could take all sorts of shapes and sizes. And and I guess I think it's probably fair to say, maybe you've got stats on this, I, I don't, but I think it's fair to say the majority of workers in the United States do not feel safe enough to say what they really think needs to get fixed or corrected or adjusted to their bosses. That's my hunch intuition from talking to workers. I don't know if you have any data or specifics, but does that ring true for you? It does ring true. And it's the whole point of the chapter. This, right. While this book is written for everybody, certainly not just leaders, you know, in official leadership positions, but it's, it's the whole premise of it is if you truly, unless you think you're it, you've arrived, you have no area for improvement. And I haven't met anybody. Well, <laughs> we'll stay away from politics or anything. I haven't met anybody that thinks that, but, but, uh, so, so we all agree that we're all in the state of getting better. Well, then how do you know where you need to get better? Well, I just know. Okay. Do you have blind spots? I'll ask people, do you have a blind spot? Oh, sure. I'm sure I have plenty of blind spots. What are they? And then they'll tell me, you know, some of the things they think they need to improve on. I say, okay. So those aren't really blind spots. <laughs> These are my blind spots, Todd. Yeah. I've documented them clearly. <laughs> That's exactly right. And so then I'll say, okay, I appreciate it. That's really good to have self-awareness. Do you have any true blind spots? You understand they're called blind spots because, they're, oh, you're right. Oh, I'm sure I do. That's the point of now let's talk about if you make it safe for others to tell you the truth. Well, how do I do that? And this is to your question. Do you routinely ask, not every day, that'd be annoying, but do you routinely ask your team, whether you're the leader or not, or just a member of the team, do you ask them for feedback? Do you have a proactive way, you know, a systematic way of getting feedback from others? Most people don't. And that's okay. You're human. Well, I would suggest that on a monthly, quarterly basis, you put some kind of system together even if it's just an email to your team. And again, you don't have to be the leader. Be a member of the team. Say, hey, folks, so appreciate the opportunity we have to work together. It's kind of my family away from home. I would really like to improve in you know, whatever I do, blah, blah, blah. I'd love to hear any feedback from you on what you think I do well and what you think I could improve on or do differently. That might sound foreign to some people. That would be really weird for somebody to do that. I'll tell you, it's not weird. And it's team changing. It's culture changing when you can encourage people to start doing that and it becomes the norm in an organization or a company. Mm -hmm. And I'd love to get your take on, I think when you first do that and folks are accustomed to, you know, their own norms where they don't do that, Mm -hmm. their thought is, oh yeah, or I'm not going to walk into that minefield. No way, Todd. I'm either going to say quietly hope that you forget about that email or (laughs) I am going to offer, you know, the most soft, you know, mm-hmm. circumnavigated version of something. I guess it's important and it's powerful, but I'm wondering, how do you make the shift? Yeah, well, I I think if you're really interested in improvement, if you're really not looking for accolades, uh, if you're the one sending out the email, you're really looking for improvements, again, don't mean to dive too deep into this, but but to make it safe, just first of all, understand that people feel just like you just said, 
you know, think, okay, what is it going to, are they really going to want to give me feedback? Do they think this is a setup? Am I going to be at odds with this person after I tell them this thing? So I want to, if I'm sincere about getting the feedback on me and I really want to improve, I will, and I'm kind of making this up, every situation is differently, but I would put in the email, please know I'm serious about this. For example, and I will share with them so they know, oh, he can hear it. So I would say something like, for example, um, some recent some colleagues that I recently asked about this were telling me that while they know it's unintentional, that I, I tend to um, dominate the meetings or talk too much. Now, I realize my, my passion maybe takes over, but I want to be aware of that. So if you've seen something like that or something like that, would you share it with me? Again, I'm really trying to to make improvements on how I can be more effective in, in group meetings and things like that. Why I'm going into such detail, Pete, is if you will share with them an example saying, oh, wow, he or she, they really are serious about this. And they're not, they're, they don't have any ego. They're, they're willing to share with, with me an area that they want to improve. And in fact, they're already sharing with me some feedback they got from somebody else. I don't pretend to say that that's comfortable for everyone to do, but but it, it's really helpful if you're willing to, to you know, take a little bit of a risk there and, 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 and be vulnerable with others. Oh, I love it. And that example is like, oh, he's for real. I think it's great. You know, it's just that simple to add that. And they may have noticed the same thing. Like, yeah, I noticed that about you. Someone told you that and you liked it. Huh. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> That's right. Well, could you maybe give us the antithesis of some of these in terms of, boy, what's something you see that people do all the time and they should just cut it out because it's counterproductive. It's doing the opposite of building effective relationships at work. It's destroying effectiveness of relationships at work. Well, again, I could talk about the antithesis of every one of these 15, but a couple of quick ones that just come to mind. Um, know yourself well and know where you're Know, know where your tendencies in not a good way are to go. Because if you can, I think we can all be honest with ourselves, not with our blind spots because they're blind, but, but with enough things to say, okay, I get that I have a tendency to do this or do that. The reason I'm, I'm doing that lead in is there was a, there was a, a, a senior level person here who's really a talented person and they also can get pretty defensive. Well, they, they had a big blow up with someone. This is Gosh, seven months ago. Yeah. And they, and they, and they blew up at this person and they blew up at this person in front of a lot of other people too. And, and good for them that at least they came to me and they said, look, I'm going to come to you before they do, because I made a big mistake. I was anxious about this, this, and this, and I got upset and I went to her and didn't handle it the right way. And not only that, I didn't even do it in private. And I just thought, oh gosh, Joe, we'll make Joe the bad guy here again. And so I said, okay, Joe, here's what I would do. Now this, hear me out here, this sounds simple. I said, uh-huh. Joe, I would email. I wouldn't, I wouldn't go back to her because you, you, you sounded pretty threatening there. Not threatening like I'm going to do something to you, but I mean, that was pretty, that was pretty uncalled for intimidating. I would email her. I would write a very carefully worded email. I would take full responsibility for what you just did. I would, you know, apologize, no excuses. And then because I know Joe well, I said, let me tell you, Joe, as human beings, we'll have a tendency to want to explain ourselves because you admitted, I appreciate you telling me you were completely wrong and that was a poor behavior. Mm. I appreciate you saying that. You're going to want to defend yourself to her. I'm going to ask you not to do that. Just take full responsibility. No, because she'll, if you defend, if you tell her what had just happened previous to that, while you're so upset, that, that 
yeah, I know that's not your intent, but that's making an excuse for your behavior. Don't do that. So right. <laughs> about two hours later, I get an email from the person who had been yelled at. And they said, I just want to show you this apology I just got from Joe, I'll say. And she forwarded it to me, not knowing that I had even coached him or anything. And the email was a beautifully written apology, take full responsibility, and then went on with a final paragraph about why he did what he did. And I, Uh-oh. <laughs> I got to tell you, it was an exercise in patience. And I just thought, wow. And I went, I just went to him, not angrily, because that was what he models. I just went to him and said, you know what? You just, you couldn't do it, could you? He goes, I know. I don't know why. I'm so sorry. So that was a long story. But, but I'm telling you, you say, what do people do wrong? Well, he doesn't know himself well enough. So now he's made amends since then and, and, and made some huge improvements. But know yourself well. Know what your tendencies are. That's the, the, the biggest faux pas. I would say just one other thing I would mention that's kind of overarching. Um, and, and I was doing an interview with somebody the other day on the book. And he asked me such an interesting question. He said, Todd, you had years and years and years of coaching and talking to people on relationships. If you could have a sign hanging outside your door before the next person came in. Now, I'm really not set up that way. It's not like a doctor's office and I got people out in the waiting room. But I thought it was an interesting question and it, I, I enjoyed it. And I thought, what would I have that sign say? And in a minute, it came to me. I said, my sign outside the door would say, have you considered the other person's perspective? Have you considered? And I, I don't mean, could you maybe agree with it? Could you disagree? It's not that at all. It's just when we can step back and put ourselves in the place of the other person, and we're so hesitant to do that because we're so worried they're going to think we're siding with them. or We're not, and they're not going to think that. Just take a minute and consider the other person's perspective. When we can get people, two people or ten people or whatever, looking at things for a minute the way the other people are looking at it, just to, just to understand their point of view, man, we can take off in, in moving forward so much quicker and, and with so much uh, better, deeper, richer understanding of one another and therefore have highly effective relationships. Oh, that's excellent. Thank you. So then the things not to do are when apologizing, explain yourself, which <laughs> creates excuses. Yeah. And don't assume on that last example. Yeah. I see people just, you know, oh, I, I, yeah, I know where Pete's coming from. Or, oh, yeah, Pete always does this. Or, well, I think Pete thinks this. Well, don't assume. Consider their perspective. Find out more. Take time to really understand where they're coming from. Would be another one that I see is a big problem when we don't do that. Absolutely. And it tends to really disarm folks as well in terms of like, well, you know, here's really what I think. And here's really where I'm coming from. And here's what's really important. And it kind of just, in some ways, open it wide up. Right. Exactly. Well, Todd, tell me, is there anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things? Well, yes, I could t- I could talk forever, but uh, um, practice 10 is talk less, listen more. So I better follow my my own advice here and listen a little bit more. But uh, yeah, that's uh, I mean, every one of these practices and I'm just looking through the list here. They are all um, like I say, I've seen them in good ways and in bad ways so many times. And I think if. If people that buy the book will, each chapter begins with a, with a question and it kind of gives you insight into whether, whether this is um, uh, an area of challenge for you or not. For instance, I'm looking at practice four, play your roles well. Uh, have you ever found that success in one area of your life comes at the expense of another area? Oh, sure. Yeah. So that's where the chapter begins. And, and I think most of us, including myself, will say, 
yes, that's happened to me. Well, then you might want to dive into practice four, play your roles well, which is all about deciding what are the most important roles in my life. And if I say 20, I'm in trouble. It's five to seven roles. Choose five to seven, both professional and, and personal roles, and decide what is the real meaningful contribution I hope to make in that role. Now, is that five to seven total or 10 to 14 total? No, that's five to seven total. We've been in, Franklin Covey's been in the business of effectiveness for a very long time. And whenever we have someone who says, well, I've got 20 very important roles and I need to focus on all of them, they're a good candidate for disappointing a lot of people a lot of the time. We, we not just recommend through, through a lot of time and data, recommend that you will, we do recommend that you choose no more than seven roles, combination of both professional and personal, to be truly focused on at any given time. Well, so can you give us some example of these role names? Sure. So my most important roles are that of a colleague, of a team leader, of a coach. And coach is how I like to refer to my chief people officer role as a family member and as a friend. There's, there's, a, there's five of them. Those are my most important roles. And what I walk people through in, in the application here is if you were to identify one person that's influenced by you in, in those roles. So if I pick the role of family member and I choose one of my children, or if I'm a team leader and I choose one of the people that I, that I um, lead in my team, what would, and I'll pick team leader. So Cindy's somebody on my team. If Cindy were to give you a five-star review, meaning five out of five, what would you hope Cindy would say about you in your team leader role? Okay. And it's, it's just, I'll tell you, this can be relationship changing. Then I have people write down just two or three sentences of what I would hope Cindy would say to me if she were giving me a five-star review. And not just think about it, write it out. And you go through that activity of writing it out. Todd, you know, while incredibly busy, um, always took time for me every week to make sure that uh, I had the resources I needed. Uh, I'm making this up. When I made mistakes, he, you know, helped me learn from those mistakes and continued to give me more opportunities, showing that he trusted me. You, you go through an activity like that and write out the ideal. It might not be what they say today, but what I'd like them to say, it changes what you do every day in your most important relationships. That is powerful. It, it reminds me of seven habits all over again in terms of imagining the eulogy at your funeral. In terms of like your overall life, you're zoomed in on a particular role. Yes. And so instead of waiting till the funeral to have nice things said about you, or, and, and again, the goal is to make meaningful contributions, but instead of waiting for the funeral or for your 80th birthday, go through that exercise now so that today I can say, like Stephen did, no, I'm not going to cancel this life with my daughter. This is, this is an important relationship to me. So it's, it's a great recalibration tool and exercise to do you know, every morning, at the beginning of every week, whatever, you're, whatever time you're going to reach. And when you say roles, you're specifically being in relation to other people as opposed to priorities. So like fitness, you know, would it be cheating to say one of my roles is as an athlete or like faith is like one of my roles is disciple of Jesus. So is that kind of cheating when you talk about roles or is that another exercise? No, no, no. Oh, Pete, I'm so glad you mentioned that because we, I really emphasize and, and not so much in the book here, but in seven habits, we talk about the role of self. We talk about the role of self, and there's a reason why when you and I get on a plane and they go through all the routine stuff and they say, put your oxygen mask on first, it's not because we're selfish or that important. It's because take care of yourself first, because then you are so much better in a better position to help others around you. And so absolutely, you have the role of self, 
And what am I doing this week? Like you said, exercise or whether it's meditation or whatever to invest in myself so that I am, in fact, even in that much better position to help others and to be of service to others. Well, no, Todd, I'd love it. Since frankly, Covey has been studying, you know, production and production capacity balance for decades. I'm deviating a little bit from the subject, but it's okay. we can. We're having fun. I'd love to get your take on in the grand scheme of priorities and roles and goals and responsibilities, like all this stuff, you know, are there any rough rules of thumb that you've seen kind of consistently just make good sense in terms of, you know, spend no more than X or no less than Y hours a day or week in exercise, in meditation, in answering your email inbox. You know, it seems like I'm imagining, you know, everyone's context is different. And at the same time, you know, we're all human beings and many of us listening are all professionals, knowledge workers. So any kind of like, you know, minimum recommended daily allowance type prescriptions you'd write here when it comes to self-care versus Mm -hmm. others kind of responsiveness? Yeah. Great question. Well, I think while I think it's different for everyone and people are in different roles and different stages of life and things like that, what I do, while I don't have data points here because it's, it is different for everyone, what, what I have found to be most successful for me and for many, many people that I coach is to make sure each week I do an evaluation of the last week. So in other words, it's filled with a lot of things that I need to do differently. And what I have found, and I think what we've all found, is that we do that self-reflection and that evaluation, maybe on New Year's Day, maybe on our birthday. And, and that's, that's good, but boy, has a lot of time gone past. Whereas if we will do that, get in the habit of doing that, some people even on a daily basis, but I do it on a weekly basis. So Sunday night is when I get set for the week. And I look back, you know, most people, a lot of people do that and they plan their week. That's great. What's been most valuable for me is to pull up my calendar for last week before I do that. And to your point now, see where did I spend the majority of my time? I say my family and, and a couple of close friends are my most important people in my life. What does my calendar show in my notes, and, you know, everything else from the week? What does that show where I spent? And this particular daughter, I have said, you know, I've been concerned about some things. And, and what, what have I done this week? Because it, it's surprising to people, it's surprising to myself, how much time has gone by, um, meaning several weeks, several months. Oh, my gosh, I was going to call, you know, my friend and we were going to go out to lunch. We talked about doing that, and has it really been three months since we did that? Well, if you will recalibrate every week and look back and look over your priorities, however you list them, I have a values list that I, you know, things that I want to make sure I address sooner than later, um, and then build them into your week going forward. And that's where I just, I just uh, link right back to that day outside with Dr. Covey, and I said, if you could do one thing out of all the things you teach to be more effective in your relationship, what would it be? And he said, plan each week before the week begins. It, it's, it's stuck in my mind. We actually uh, did a, a course or a videotape around it because of, it was just so um, meaningful, especially coming from someone who understood relationships and effectiveness so much. So, so I, think, I think when your listeners and myself, we do that, we look over the week and we say, you know, is there a rule of thumb how much time? Well, I think the rule of thumb is to say, if I really believe that uh, 
these people, you know, my, my family, I'm just using this as an example, most important people in my life, and yet I can look back for the last three weeks, and if I add it up, I probably spent a total of seven hours with them in over three weeks. I may want to shift some things going forward. Or if I said, gosh, I wanted to be, you know, the, the world's best project leader on this particular project, even though I'm juggling like four roles at work, and then I go back and look, how much time am I dedicating to that particular thing? It's a, it's a real good look in the mirror, so to speak, to then maybe adjust what I do going forward. All right. Well, Todd, this is so much good stuff. I want to hear about at least a couple of your favorite things. Could you share with us now a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? I have three of them. <laughs> they're posted right by me and they're quotes that I love to live by. Have you got time for three? Oh, sure. Okay. Uh, the first is by Dr. Covey, and I think about it every day, and I, I like to remind people that leadership is a choice, not a position. That's not the quote, but I'm just saying it's applicable to everybody. But the quote is, leadership is communicating to people their worth and potential so clearly that they come to see it in themselves. And again, you don't have to be a formal leader to do that, but communicate to people their worth and their potential so clearly they come to see it in themselves. So that's a, a, a quote that I love and I try and live by. And I do better at it some days than others. Um, another one is by John Wooden. Well, it's actually by Abraham Lincoln, but the coach John Wooden used it a lot. And uh, but it's, it's actually attributed to Abraham Lincoln. And Abraham Lincoln said, it is better to trust and be disappointed once in a while than to distrust and be miserable all of the time. All right. Such a great quote. And, and again, not implying just be blind and get gullible and be taken advantage of, but have a propensity to trust. And especially as we're talking about relationships, err on the side of trusting unless and until someone gives you a reason to not trust. And then my last one, can I give you the last one? I'll go for it. Okay. This one is written by a, an old actress by the name of Fanny Bryce. And Fanny Bryce said, let the world know you as you are, not as you think you should be. Because sooner or later, if you are posing you will forget the pose, and then where are you? All right. So it's just all about authenticity and, and be who you are. Okay. And Todd, if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? I would point them to getbetterbook.com, www.getbetterbook.com. And all of my information, my Twitter feed, LinkedIn, all of that is there. Perfect. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs? Well... I'm all about relationships and, and uh, relationships, you know, sometimes people think, well, that's soft or that's just for home. Actually, the most effective people in their work have the most meaningful effective relationships. I was following a, a motorhome the other day and, and, it was, and people probably have seen this bumper sticker. The motorhome was pulling a boat. And I think he had like some ATVs or something stuck up on top. So it's just I've seen the number of toys he had there. And it was great. And I'm not putting that down. I would love to have all those things. And his bumper sticker said he, and I'll be politically correct here and say or she, but he who has the most toys wins. And I was following that, thinking how great it would be to have all those things. And I thought to myself, he or she who has the most meaningful relationships wins. Mm-hmm. And that is kind of my mantra. And, and, and again, I'm certainly not perfect at it, but it's where my area of focus is every day is just building strong, meaningful, sincere relationships. Oh, fantastic. Well, Todd, thank you so much for taking this time. It's a whole lot of good stuff and inspiration, you know, from a place that's been an inspiration to me. So 
a real treat to chat. I wish you tons of luck with the book, Get Better, and and Chief People Offer Surring over at Franklin Covey and your speeches and, and all you're up to here. Thank you so much, Pete. It's been a pleasure to get to know you, and I appreciate your time. I loved how Todd suggested so simply that when you ask people for feedback, you give it a specific example, like here's a specific name of a person you've probably know or have heard of, identifying a specific thing about me. He shared that with me. And I appreciated that and I'm working on it. I think that just can go a huge long way in terms of resonating. Oh, you are for real. And I've also sort of noticed that about you. I think that really just stuck with me. And so, so helpful to put a little bit of reality to your request because a lot of folks will say, "Mm, yeah, right. And I've heard some tales of folks that they're engaging in like a 360 feedback process and then they come back and say, all right, which one of you dinged me on communication? That just kind of cracks me up there. A little bit ironic, don't you think? It's sort of like, okay, are we for real about the feedback request or not? Oh, that sounds legit. That's helpful. So I think that packs a a heck of a punch in showing that you mean business. So I hope you dug that and some of the other insights. And again, if you want to check out the show notes, the transcript, the links to items reference, that's on over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep233. And I hope you have a very happy Thanksgiving. That's on the Thursday. There'll be no episode then. Friday is the Black Friday special where I share a few of my favorite things. If you care, if you're doing some shopping and some stuff I've found that's kind of cool over the last year or so. So I hope to catch you there. And after that, we got Mike Figliolo, who's chatting about critical thinking insights. Hope to catch you there and peace. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.